Amen. Thank you, church family. Please go ahead and have a seat. Get your Bibles uh, open if you'd like to to Acts chapter 6. That was, that's where we're going to be primarily studying through today. Our ushers are bringing around note sheets and pencils. Those are there to help you if they help you. If they are a distraction to you, go ahead and ignore them. We're not going to uh, turn them in at the end of the day for extra credit or anything. So uh, if you don't like using the note sheets, feel free to skip them. But we are a church that worships God not just on Sundays but every day. And so it's our hope that perhaps taking the note sheet home, you'll look at it throughout the week, you'll think about it some more, and the words that you're able to be blessed by today through this preaching of God's Word would, uh, in, uh, would bless you again as you go through on Tuesday or Thursday or later on in the week, that God would stir up even more thought in your mind directed towards Him and towards His glory. So, uh, so we provide those for you, and uh, we hope that they'll be helpful. If you need a Bible, also raise your hand. We, we want people to be able to have... God's Word with them as we're studying together. So just let us know if you need that, and uh, we'd be happy to provide it for you. If you have to, happen to have to go to the bathroom during the service, we don't have bathrooms in this building, so you'll go up the stairs and to the right through the double doors, and our bathrooms are, are right through that way. But if you're, uh, if you're here for the first time, thank you so much for joining us today. We're always praying that God would bring new folks that we can minister to and get to know. And so uh, just know you're an answer to prayer today. We're blessed to be able to, uh, to get to know you and to meet you. Last week we examined uh, the role of the New Testament elder, particularly the elders need to focus on two primary responsibilities. They are to be enwrapped up in prayer and praying for the people of the church, praying for the needs of the many who have needs, praying for the blessings that God has been pouring about upon us, praying for direction and guidance. And they are also to be administering the Word of God. They're to be using the Scripture in such a way that it is guiding our people, helping us to grow as disciples, becoming stronger, more mature, and more aware of what God has saved us for, for the good works that He has assigned for us ahead of time to do. Now, to make sure that these important functions were fulfilled without other important functions of the church being neglected, the Lord led the early church to institute a new position of influence in the early New Testament church. And that position is called a deacon. So that's what we're going to be studying today, if you'd like to turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be studying what it means to be a deacon and serve the Lord in that special calling. Last week, it was this same passage in Acts 6 that reinforced those two primary functions of the elder. But it's also the same scripture that gives us a window into the important role of the deacon. By chapter 6 of Acts, the New Testament church is in its infancy. Jesus Christ has already accomplished his mighty work of living a perfect life that fulfilled the law of Moses in every way, and then giving that pure life on the cross uh, for the forgiveness of sins of all who would trust in Him. He has died and rose again on the third day, fulfilling His prophetic utterance, the things that He said He would do. He rose from the grave and showed power over sin and death. He has showed Himself to hundreds of people in the 30 or 40 days following His resurrection to show that His resurrection was not just a rumor or a hoax. And He has ascended to be at the right hand of God the Father. But before He does that, He gives instruction to His disciples, to those who have trusted in Him. He wants them to know what they are to be doing as they wait for His return, which we still wait for today. So this New Testament church knows that they are to be preaching the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to all who will hear it and, and prayerfully guiding those who will receive it and become disciples of Christ as well. So as the church grows, the leadership 
has got to make adjustments. This small group of believers is beginning to rapidly expand. And so effort needs to make, be, made, be made to make sure that the people of the church are not overlooked, that they're cared for, and they're discipled, and they are grown up in the faith. And so we're in Acts chapter 6, and we're going to begin by reading the first uh, two verses of the first seven. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a, cl- a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So let's stop right there for just a minute. This new church, this growing church, has encountered a problem, hasn't it? There is a responsibility that Christians have one to another to look after each other, to make sure that those who are in great need, those who are uh, impoverished, or those who are sick are not overlooked, that they are cared for by their brothers and sisters in faith. And as we see this New Testament church growing, we're made aware of the fact that their needs are great. And there's a particular subgroup in that early church in Jerusalem that was not experiencing that tangible love, that care that they expected from their brothers and sisters through faith. The Roman believers, those Greeks who were not Jewish by heritage, but had heard the gospel preached and had come to trust in Jesus Christ, were being very concerned because their widows, the Greek widows who lived with the Christians and lived among that community, were not being looked after. Excuse me. Were not being looked after. They were being neglected. That they were being overlooked, and so they were not receiving food and support and money from the church as they should have been. Probably it was an oversight. I don't believe anybody in the church was trying to push them out or trying to show their displeasure with these Greeks coming into the church. I don't think that was the case at all. It's simply just one of the facts of community, that when you have grown up around a certain group of people, you probably have established relationships, and it's easier for somebody that you're connected with and you see regularly and you live in their community, it's easier to see their need. These converts to Christianity were new to the community. Many of them lived apart from the community, and so it wasn't as easy to see these people who had needs. There needed to be a real effort made to make sure they were not overlooked. But there were other responsibilities as well. The apostles brought up a very important point in that last verse we read. They said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Their primary responsibility and the burning passion of their hearts was to preach the gospel. That doesn't mean that taking care of those with needs was unimportant to them. And it didn't mean that they were unwilling to help to some degree with those who were sick or impoverished or needy. But what it meant was they were so overwhelmed with the demands on their time to help those in need that they couldn't do the primary job that God had called them to. So these leaders are making it clear that the church would be doing damage to itself if prayer and preaching were neglected in order to meet the needs of this group. They needed to shift. They needed to change. There needed to be an adjustment made. So make no mistake about it, church. Mercy matters to Jesus. Mercy matters to Jesus and it should matter to His church. We as God's people have seen such great love and compassion poured out onto us that by no means can we walk through this world praising God for giving us mercy, giving us grace, loving us despite our faults and our sins, and then see people who are broken and hurting in the world and just ignore their needs. The scripture 
is chock full of examples of God showing the importance of mercy in the church. James 1, verse 27. The half-brother of Jesus writes to the church saying, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, there are many forms of religion in this world, many of which are quite polluted, aren't there? There are cults that appear to be Christian on the outside, and yet they preach a different gospel than the one that God delivered unto us. There are those who are, count themselves religious, and they, they live by a moral code, but that code is not saving them. It's simply giving them reasons to think better of themselves than they think of others who cannot keep the code. There are televangelists who call themselves religious leaders who will ask and ask and ask for more and more money at the detriment of their believers, and yet they're not truly concerned for the souls of those that they are preaching to. Not all televangelists do that, but there are those that are out there. To the point that some have erred in arguing that religion itself is bad, that we need to abandon religion and only focus on this one-to-one -one relationship that we can have with God through Jesus Christ. Friends, that's a mistake. And it's like throwing out the baby with the bathwater. We should not call worthless what God has described to us in His Word as noble. Here we see that good religion, and James uses that word, religion. Good religion in its cleanest form is this, honoring God by caring for the least of these, just as He has cared for us. Though we are wretched sinners that deserve punishment because we have sinned against Him, God has loved us anyway. When we keep ourselves unstained by the corruption of the world and at the same time spend ourselves to care for those who struggle to care for themselves, God is honored in that. And we have practiced true, honorable religion. James 2, 15-17 also goes on to say, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that they are needed for their body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. These are very strong words by the half-brother of Jesus. He's trying to tell us that our religion cannot just be a bunch of talking. It cannot just be a bunch of ideas that remain in our minds, but those ideas must get down into our hearts to such a degree that they affect our actions and our being. And if we truly are loved by God, then that love should be overflowing us and showing itself, manifesting itself in such a way that we are loving other people. If we claim to be interested in the things of God, but step over the destitute on the way to our seminaries or on the way to our churches, then we're not practicing faithful religion to God. We're just playing games. Our heart for the Lord should manifest itself in a heart for other people. Looking at some of the teachings of Paul, we see the same thing echoed in the letters that he writes to the churches. He's careful to instruct them to love one another and to care for those who are especially vulnerable in society. In Galatians 2, 9-10, through 10, he says, And when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. 
that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, meaning that Paul was especially assigned to minister to Gentile people because the love of God was not to be contained within one race or one nation. It was to go out to the world, to all types of people. Verse 10, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So Paul, this mighty man of mission, this man who is responsible for starting many of the early churches in the fledgling time of Christianity, though he was gifted as, as an evangelist and as a teacher and as a shepherd, was also passionate about looking after the poor and taking care of those who struggled to take care of their own needs. The spread of the gospel should be critical to us, friends, but even the Apostle Paul was fixed on making sure that no one was overlooked in the body of Christ. So the early church leaders in Jerusalem, rather than leave these widows neglected, these Hellenistic widows, they made an important decision. And so we continue to read in Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we, the elders, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose St Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permanus, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The decision is made to institute a new specialized leadership position in the church that would carry the responsibility of making sure that the mercy ministries of God's people are taken care of in a loving and consistent way. Deacons are to be involved in a compassionate ministry of caring for the poor, the needy, the marginalized, in a way that strengthens the church and frees the elders up to faithfully fulfill their own calling, which is to minister to prayer and the teaching of the Word. We have already read how Paul, in 1 Timothy 3, goes to the trouble of instructing Timothy to appoint people in Ephesus <clears throat> to this special office. Now, let's turn real quickly to Philippians chapter 1. I'm just going to read a couple of verses there. I want to point something important out to you. As we try to consider what these verses in Acts chapter 6 mean, I think it's important to see the repercussions of these verses. In Philippians chapter 1, starting with verse 1, this letter to the Philippian church begins like this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the apostle Paul is sending a greeting to this church that he intends to interact with through letter. He wants to teach them some things. He wants to share some information with them that's critical to their health as a church. He wants to encourage them and build them up. And the way that he addresses them is really informative because as we read that introduction, he distinctly divides the church into three parcels and he greets all of them together. But he points out that there are three stations within the church. First of all, he says, greetings to all the saints at Philippi. 
a brother asked me last week, he came up and said, I'm a little confused. From my background, saints were people who had achieved greatness in Christianity and were venerated above other believers. But I explained to him that's actually not how it is spoken of in the New Testament. When you read the scripture, the word saints doesn't talk about an exclusive few. It's not the all-star team of the church. Rather, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have given your heart to him, confessed your sin, and trusted in the work that Jesus did on the cross, you've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. You are a righteous person now, not because of the things that you did, but because of the righteousness of Christ which has been put into you. So as you read through the New Testament, if you keep your eye out for that word saint, it's used again and again to describe believers. If you are a believer, guess what? You're a saint. You are a saint in the Lord, not because of anything you have done to accomplish that status, but simply because you are a believer in Jesus Christ and His righteousness now rests upon you. He is sanctifying you. He is making you pure. That doesn't mean you're as perfect as Jesus was, but it means that you belong to Him and you are identified with His righteousness. So he first writes this letter to all the saints in Philippi, meaning all the believers. But then he makes a distinction here. He also mentions the overseers. And if you were with us last week, uh, we talked about how there are several key terms which are synonyms. They're basically meaning the same thing. Overseer, elder, pastor. These are all one office in the New Testament church. So he's, he's identifying those men who are responsible for praying over the church and preaching the word of God to the church. These overseers, these elders, these pastors. And then he distinctly mentions this third office, and it's that office of deacons, these servant leaders who also are important but are not exactly the same as elders. They are saints, but they've been called to a special work and ministry within the church. And so that's why we're taking the time to figure out what does it mean to be a deacon, and that's why our church has been burdened, that we really need to instill deacons into our church. We have never had deacons in the history, the short history of this church, and it's time for that to change. We are desiring for God to help us through His Word bring about a change here at First Family so that we might better minister to our own people by following the model that God has set to us in His Scripture. The Lord knows what His church needs. Knowing that we would need leaders specifically responsible for the mercy and the care of the church and its members, God created this special office. And we see that happen in Acts chapter 6. Has not having deacons hurt us? I'm sure that it has. It's not that we overlook the needs of our people, but it is more difficult for those who are serving as elders in our church to do the job that they've been called to do when the needs of the people are many. And there isn't enough hands to go around to do that work well and allow the elders to continue to put the time into preaching and praying and ministering to the spiritual needs of the people like God has called them to do. So in verse 3 of Acts chapter 6, we learn how these men are to be selected. If we're going to bring deacons into our church, we want to do it the way that Scripture tells us to do it. And so looking at Acts chapter 6, verse 3, it instructs us, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men. Seven men. Now, the people are to have a say in this process. Therefore, brothers, meaning all in the church, pick out among you these kind of men. They are to be actively involved in the nomination process. Because these men would meet the needs of the people, it was wise leadership to allow the people to elect these men to be considered for the office of deacon. 
There are so many times in our history as a nation that we have seen people put into positions of authority. They were representing others, and yet they were not connected in any way to the people they were representing. What happens when that happens? If there is no representation, then it's really difficult for those people to identify the needs of a people that they are so very different from. So it was, it was critical that these people who were elected the office be elected from the body of believers. It involved them in this process of choosing people who are leaders, and it made them responsible too. We've got to be careful about the people that we put in positions of leadership over us. We've got to be very discerning about who we allow to lead us because we have responsibilities to follow them. The scripture makes that very clear to us. And so as we think about the way that these early deacons were nominated, they were nominated by the people. And we notice that the list of names recorded in verse 5 says that a man named Nicolaus was selected. Do you see that little subnote that was attached to his name? They describe Nicolaus as a proselyte from Antioch. What does that mean? A proselyte is somebody who is converted to Christianity. That means that they weren't originally a Jewish person who grew up in the scripture of the Old Testament. They were probably a Greek person, a Hellenist. You see what's happening here? They are electing to their number a man who is clearly connected to the very group that was being overlooked. So that segment of the population of, of believers would no longer be ignored or neglected or, or forgotten. When your elders recognize that we have been missing out on the blessing of deacons here, our understanding and our instruction of this passage kept us from just simply going out and appointing some guys to be deacons over you. By the way, the number seven isn't necessarily necessary. Uh, seven might be a good number for a certain congregation, but some congregations where there is greater need, where there is a higher concentration of widows or orphans or, or the poor would probably need to have more deacons than a church that might even be bigger than them, but is in an area where people are more stable financially, where there's not as much sickness or there aren't as many elderly in the congregation. So the number seven is not something we should be caught up on. But when we decided as a church that we needed deacons, we didn't just go out and write a list down and put those deacons before you and say, look, these are the guys. We wanted to follow the scripture because the word instructs us to lean on you for help. We want the body of believers to help us determine who would be best for this position. Both elders and deacons are brought to the congregation by the election or the uh, suggestion of our members. And uh, when we are finished here today, after our baptisms and after we are dismissed, I want you to know that on the back table, there is a nomination form for deacons we have just published for you. And if you have in mind somebody that you think would be a particularly good deacon here at First Family Church, pray about it. I want you to consider these things. Grab one of those nomination forms. Tell the person that you think would be a good person to be a deacon. Tell them you're nominating them and then nominate them. Fill out that form. Perhaps the Lord is putting on your heart as we've been talking about these positions in the church. God has been tugging at you. And the Holy Spirit has been revealing to you that perhaps this is a way that God wants you to serve. If you would desire to serve in this position and you look at the qualifications and you believe that you're living up to them, then go ahead and grab one of those forms and fill that out yourself. Because we are going to invite you into this process of, of bringing deacons into our church body so that we might better care for our people. Now the church are to be involved in this important process of selection and appointment. But not just anyone could do the job. You can't just go back there and grab a form and say, I like so-and-so. And so you put their name on the form. It's got to be more serious than that. We see in verse 3 that immediately after instructing those men 
or those believers to choose some men for, for the service of deacon, the elders narrowed the pool from which the congregation could draw by indicating what kind of men the congregation should be choosing from. Verse 3 says, Men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, we've expanded on some of this in our recent examinations of 1 Timothy 3, which goes into the character qualities of a good deacon. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this this morning, but let's see what three characteristics this earliest church panel uh, used to determine the selections for deacon service. First of all, the men they chose must be men of good reputation, men of good standing. Deacons are to be men who are trustworthy, and who are respected in the community. Men who can be counted on to show up and do more than just get a job done. These are not people that just do the bare minimum, but they're people that are respected because they do quality work. They care about their responsibilities, and they want to fulfill those responsibilities in a worshipful way to the Lord. They are known for working hard. They are known for being faithful. They're good standing not only inside the church, but also outside of the church, is going to reflect on their commitment to living a life of integrity before the Lord. And so as ministers of mercy, deacons often are going to be called upon to handle significant resources that belong to God. The offerings that you give don't just keep the lights on here. They don't just pay the salaries of the ministers. They are also there to take care of the needs of our people. So our deacons will need to be trusted with sums of money. They'll have to be responsible for distributing goods and resources. They might have to pay a bill for a church member. They might have to go into a home and teach that church member how to better organize their finances so that they don't get into financial ruin. Uh, they might be asked uh, to, to take somebody to a, an important doctor's appointment that they cannot afford to miss that's vital to their health. So these must be men that we can count on that are reliable and who keep their word. The deacon is a strongly representative position. The words of 1 Corinthians 10.31 apply to deacons just as they apply to all areas of Christian life where Paul says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of the Lord. And when somebody receives the position of deacon, when they are called to that position, then they are cognizant, they are aware of the fact that their actions in service of the Lord is going to reflect on the God who saved them. So they must be men of good reputation. Verse 3 also tells us that a deacon must be full of the Spirit. Full of the Spirit. These must be godly men. Now there is a mistake made often in churches that the deacon should be the guy who has always come to church, he's faithfully attended church, Maybe his wife is really passionate about Jesus and he's always been here, but he's not so much a spiritual guy. He's, you don't get to see him leading people in prayer very often. He's not going to be the head of a Bible study. He's, he's always there to do stuff around the church, stuff that he's comfortable doing, like stacking chairs and fixing sprinklers and changing the light bulbs, but he's not really a, a spiritual guy. So instead of making him an elder, let's make him a deacon and then he can just handle all the non-spiritual aspects of the work. But here we see that a man who's going to serve as a deacon must be a man who is spirit-filled. And as they describe the first seven gentlemen that served in this capacity, we see that it reiterates that they were men filled with the spirit. These are men that loved the Lord God and had a passion for him. These are not guys that just show up and sit and take up space and know how to turn a screwdriver. These are guys who are capable 
and who love the Lord and have a passion for Him and want to see the gospel shared to the earth, to all the people of the earth. So let it be clear, the work of a deacon is not just secular work that is done in the confines of the church. It is godly work done by godly men to the glory of God. The deacon may help with the needs of the poor, but he knows that their greatest need is not groceries. Their greatest need is not the electrical bill to be paid. Their greater need, their eternal need, is for Jesus Christ to be the king of their life. And when Jesus Christ is Lord on the throne of our lives, then the things that often hinder us and hamper us become less of an opponent than they used to be. It's not such a big deal if I'm struggling with sickness, if Jesus Christ is my king. It's something I can endure if I'm poor as long as Jesus Christ has given me assurance of salvation. So the deacon has got to be open-eyed that they're there to meet a physical need, but they're also aware that there are deeper spiritual needs that they could very well be used by God to meet in the lives of those people. The deacon's going to need to trust the Holy Spirit to have the kind of patience and long-suffering that is needed to put his own needs, his own comforts aside and help with those who are suffering and in need of assistance. Mercy ministry can be very difficult. It can consume time. It can be needed over and over again. And so these men must be patient. They must be relying on the Holy Spirit. And they must be exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit like mercy and patience and long-suffering. As the deacon decides the best way to help in any given situation, he's going to need the Holy Spirit to guide him and to give him insight into how he must point people to Christ through the services that he is rendering to them. So these men have got to be spiritual men. The last thing that verse 3 tells us about these deacons in the early church was to select men who were full of wisdom. Full of wisdom. Now one of the things we talked about already is that the thing that really uh, separates the elder position of service and the deacon position of service is that elders are responsible for teaching the word of God to others. They've got to handle the word correctly. Now that doesn't mean that deacons shouldn't know the word. I think the deacons should know the word. Deacons should be familiar with the truth of God. But it means that they aren't necessarily compelled to teach it and preach it. Many of the deacons can teach and preach the word. In fact, in that list of the first deacons, there was a man mentioned in verse 5 named Stephen. And Stephen was a man of full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And he was one of those very first deacons that helped the early church. And if you continue to read in chapter 6 of Acts, and if you've got time in your devotions this week, keep reading that chapter and then flip to 7 and read 7. And you're going to see something amazing. This man who was called forward to be a deacon of relief, to come forward to be a man who would care about the needs of his brothers and sisters in the church, a man who would meet physical needs and who would bring food to those who were hungry and would, would provide for those who didn't have anything. This man is given an opportunity to preach the word. And he didn't say, uh, let me go get an elder. Let me go get an evangelist. I'm going to go make sure that somebody else can do that. But instead, in that moment, when God brought him to a crossroads and people were pointing at him and accusing him of being a blasphemer, see, many in the Jewish church did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And when these early Christians began to say, this is the fulfillment of Scripture, this man is the one that God has promised, some of those older believers in Yahweh did not believe in Jesus. And so they were upset at these early Christians. And so this man, Stephen, finds himself under accusation. They're pointing fingers at him and calling him a blasphemer. And rather than turn tail and run, 
he stood and simply began to preach his testimony to them. He began to share in a beautiful way, filled with the Holy Spirit, why he trusted in Jesus Christ and how he saw Jesus Christ being the very fulfillment of the Jewish law that those, those uh, people who were persecuting him claimed to hold to. He represented Christ beautifully in that moment. He was a deacon. He was not an elder. But he knew the Word of God and the Holy Spirit used him in a mighty way. Stephen, after preaching that sermon, is dragged out of town and executed for what he believes. They threw giant stones on him and crushed him and put him to death. And Stephen is recorded as he is dying. One of the last things that he says echoed the words of Jesus Christ who had given his life for Stephen. He said, please forgive them, Father. They don't understand what they're doing. So these are not just the quiet guys who don't really pay attention in the sermon, but you got to get them doing something. These are spiritual men who love the Lord God and have the wisdom of the Word and can apply it to their mercy ministries as they help other people. Wisdom is critical to possess as a servant leader. To meet the needs of a person, a deacon's got to know the needs of the person. So deacons have got to be observant. They've got to be people who are looking out for others, who are not so wrapped up in their own personal life or their hobbies that they don't see when somebody's struggling or hurting. They've got to keep track of people. They've got to say, who needs the help of the church right now? They've got to go and take that first step because often people don't want to be a burden. They don't want to ask for help, but sometimes that help needs to be offered. And so a deacon has got to be aware of the people that he is ministering to. He's got to care for the sheep just as the elders do, as the shepherds do. He's also got to be wise enough to discern between a real need and a perceived need. Now the New Testament gives us some great scriptures that helps us to understand that not everybody who says, I need, really needs something. Sometimes what they need is exhortation and encouragement. Sometimes what they need is greater wisdom instead of their problem to be solved because God makes us able to work towards the solving of our problems as long as we trust the Holy Spirit. So a deacon has got to be wise. They can't be easily fooled by somebody who really just wants to take the resources of the church but has no care for the Lord God at all. These deacons must be faithful and competent individuals. In the course of meeting the needs of the people, they might be bringing food. They might be paying a bill. They might be visiting the sick in the hospital. They might be counseling people through situations of hardship and trial. And so we need deacons who are wise enough to do that. And deacons who are wise enough to know that if there is a question asked that they can't answer, rather than just make something up or try to appear wise, that they can direct that individual to one of the elders who might be able to help better. So as we read on, We find further directions in this passage. Verse 3 goes on to say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. Who's the we there? We're talking about the elders, the apostles, who are in charge of directing the church at this time. While the congregation of the church presented seven men to fulfill these roles, in the end it was the elders who appointed the men to the duty. In Acts 2, 6.6, 6.6, it says, These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The laying on of hands is nothing really magical, but what it is signifying is that the authority that God has given to these elders is being conveyed to those deacons, that they might recognize them as men who will now faithfully serve the church alongside the elders in a way that glorifies God. Now, it's not 
because the congregation can't be trusted that these elders have got to make the ultimate call on who can and cannot serve as a deacon. It's because ultimately the elders <clears throat> are the leaders of the church. They are called by God to be responsible over that flock. <clears throat> and if these men are going to serve as deacons and representatives, their conduct is the responsibility of those elders. Those elders have got to be careful about letting people into the church to lead who can be faithfully trusted and who display true signs that they are worshiping the Lord God and living faithfully to Him. <clears throat> Our church will follow the same pattern as we institute the office of deacon here. Now looking again at that verse in chapter 6 of Acts, verse 5 says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. See, the, the church was not upset that they had nominated men, but then the elders had to affirm the men. They understood that this was part of the structure that God had designed for them. And so what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. The people were happy with this decision. They knew that God was going to use this new office to bless the church and to make the church stronger. <clears throat> By instituting this office, the Lord broke down the New Testament leadership of the church into two distinct sections. They're not entirely distinct because they overlap quite a bit. Your elders are going to show mercy. Your deacons are going to know the word and they're going to minister to people in the way of the word. But when we think of elders and we think of deacons, the two sections of leadership in the church are the leadership of the word and the leadership of deed. Word and deed. Truth and action. Elders were to be responsible for the service of the word, for teaching and praying and instructing and discipling. Whereas these deacons were going to be particularly responsible for the service of deeds, mercy, compassion, helping out around the church body. And these are, like I said, by no means mutually exclusive, but they are the general focus of each of the stations. And as you can see, they help each other to do their job better by standing side by side and working in concert with one another. As a side note, <clears throat> I think it's important to mention that the focus of deacons should be first on the ministering to the needs of the Christian community. We've got to make sure that the people who have committed themselves to the Lord God and are a part of the body of Christ here are looked after first because they have an investment here. They are the people of God, and God has saved them for His own glory. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, meaning those who have given their lives to Christ and have joined the church to be a part of what God is doing there. So these deacons have a primary focus, which is the people of the congregation that they are particularly loving on and ministering to. Deacons can't be expected to solve every single social problem in a community. It's beyond the scope of what they can do. When the needs of the brothers and sisters are met, at that point the deacon needs to look beyond the walls of the church and see what other ways that we can reach out to our community and meet some needs around us. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as do we for you so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. So where are we supposed to have love for? For one another and for all. So the deacon is not just responsible for ministering to our little holy huddle here. 
He's also looking beyond the walls of the church, but his first responsibility rests with his brothers and sisters in the congregation. Now, friends, as time goes on, the church has a tendency to stray from instruction. Historically, if you look back at the people who have tried to walk faithfully to God, inevitably we see that there are times when we stray from what the Lord has revealed to us and we've got to correct and go back to what God has taught to us. Such has been the case in the leadership's offices of the church as well. So very quickly as we conclude, let me point out three things that the New Testament deacon is not. We've talked about what the deacon is, what the deacon's responsible for, but a deacon is not the governing official of the church. In some congregations, in many congregations in the Southern Baptist Convention that we are a part of, we have seen over time a shift to where there is one pastor in the church and the pastor has a whole bunch of deacons that really don't function as deacons as much as they function as elders. They don't have necessarily the qualifications of elders because they're not preaching or teaching in the congregation, but they are functioning as the directing governors of the church. And as we read the scripture together, we see that that wasn't originally the design that God had given to us. So I think it's one of the responsibilities of our generation to try to return to what God has given to us, that we might make that course correction and realize that deacons are critical and important, but they are not the governing body of the church. Churches are supposed to be led by elders, directed by elders, but that elder leadership is to be supported in an important way by the deacons. The second mistake that people make in viewing deacons is they look at them as glorified janitors. The deacon is the man who rides the cub cadet and mows the lawn. He's the man that fixes the light that went out in the sanctuary, and that's all he does. But in reality, deacon work, as we have seen today, is so much more than that. It is a spiritual office, it's an office of compassion and mercy. It's an office more of the heart than of the hands, isn't it? You start with loving people, and that's what makes you go out and meet their needs and help them out. So we cannot afford to look at our deacons as just glorified janitors. And thirdly, deacons are not just junior varsity elders. Deacon service is not the minor leagues that eventually you graduate from and become a pastor. Now, it's true that some elders may find at different times in their life that they serve the Lord better as a deacon. And there are some deacons that might, as they grow and learn more of the Word, develop a great passion for teaching the Scripture or might have an intense love for prayer. And we might see somebody who served formerly as a deacon become an elder because that is what God is leading them to. But we cannot see this deacon ministry as some secondary farm system for elder leadership. They are an important aspect of our church. And our church has not done a good job of following the scripture and having deacons. We've tried to do it just with the, the elders and with our Bible study leaders. And we've been doing a, a decent job at that. But I really believe that as we follow the Lord God in obedience, that he's going to bless this change that we're making and bringing uh, the deacon ministry to a church that has needed it. Now, why, you might ask, would somebody consider serving as a deacon? If it's going to require your time, if it's going to be difficult, why would you go forward and, and, and volunteer to do something like this? Well, 1 Timothy 3, which was the passage of Scripture we had been studying for so long and the uh, characteristics of elders and deacons, says in verse 13, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. 
What is this great standing that they gain? That doesn't mean that you, you try to serve as a deacon because you want to be an all-star in the church and you want everyone to recognize you and you get a special parking space out in front that says deacon on the front. It's not that kind of recognition. But as you minister filled with the Spirit and you act as an agent of God's love by serving as a deacon, people are going to respect you more for that. So if you are faithful in fulfilling this calling, then people are going to say, wow, Christ is at work in the life of that man. And I can't think of a greater compliment to be received than for somebody to see the work of Christ in us. So those who serve faithfully as deacons will receive a greater standing amongst their, the people they serve. They will, they will grow in trust with the people around them. They will be appreciated and loved and, and revered. And you'll see that the church will look out for those deacons because the deacons are often looking out for the church. The second part of this is really, really important too. When you serve the Lord God faith like this, you receive greater confidence in the faith. You're going to grow in how you trust the Lord. Nothing presses on a man like faithful service to the Savior. And so as I have discovered by going forward to be an elder in God's church according to the calling that He's put in my heart, when you faithfully say yes to serve as a deacon when God is calling you to that, you're going to find that putting yourself in that position and having to trust in the Holy Spirit regularly will strengthen your walk with the Lord and you will see Him work in your life in ways that you might not have ever seen Him work before. The gift is the service itself. Being willing and able and available to bless your brothers and sisters in Christ will bring tremendous joy and peace to your heart. There will also be times of heartache. You'll be exposed to the great needs of people. You'll stand by their side as they struggle through their cancer, as, as they don't know how to make ends meet. There will be times when you want to meet a need and the resources will not be there. So it's not easy. But it is so refreshing to see the Lord working in the lives of the body of Christ to bless believers and even to bless those who do not yet know Christ that they might see the tangible love of the Lord and perhaps desire to know the personal love of Jesus as well through faith. So as we conclude, I want to close with a word of prayer and then we're going to shift gears a little bit because we're going to, in just a moment, release our candidates for baptism. They're going to go back and change. We're going to sing two songs together as a church and then we're going to baptize uh, three people this morning. So let's have a brief word of prayer. God, we thank you for your love and we pray and trust uh, that you will use what we have learned today in the scripture to encourage us, regardless of whether we are ever going to serve as deacons or not, these principles still reveal the truth of your character, and much of who you are is shown to us in the way that you have guided and led your church. And so we thank you for the leadership that you revealed to us in scripture. Please bless our hearts as we see these individuals come forward to profess their faith in you through baptism. Uh, we, we anticipate being greatly blessed by this. May you be glorified in all we do, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.